Hi, I'm Lynette from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Victor Farsic. Based in Barcelona, Victor is a writer and popular conference speaker and senior consultant at CloudBees, which provides companies with enterprise solutions for automating software development and delivery. Victor is the author of four LeanPub books in his DevOps Toolkit series, including his first, the DevOps 2.0 Toolkit, Automating the Continuous Deployment Pipeline with Containerized Microservices, and his latest, his latest the DevOps 2.3 Toolkit, Kubernetes. You can follow Victor on Twitter at vfarsage, and you can read his blog at technologyconversations.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Victor's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his, his uh, interesting experience uh, with self-publishing. So thank you, Victor, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Hi, you're welcome. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software. Oh, so I grew up in Belgrade, in Serbia. And my interest in software was out of desperation, I think, because uh, my mom, when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or something like that, bought me a brand new Amstrad computer. I'm sure that most people don't know what it is, uh, which came without games, without anything, just a computer, right? And a, and a book in German, which I did not speak. So uh, the only thing I could do is, is just, you know, open the book type the same commands without understanding what they do and then try to figure out what that all means. So uh, lack of games made me a programmer, I think. And um, when you were growing up, um, Serbia wasn't Serbia, was it? No, it was Yugoslavia, yes. Yes, it was a bigger country. And that, um, so that was a, a turbulent time politically uh, growing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, uh, politically not that much growing up, but then uh, I'm, I'm an old guy. So uh, that time, no. But then when the 90s came, then all hell broke loose and uh, things went downward from there, I guess. And that was um, around the time you were attending university at the University of Belgrade, which I found from LinkedIn. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was uh, studying back then uh, computers at first, then I switched to archaeology as a way to run away from computers. Uh, and then they pulled me back in. They figured out they need, they need software for archaeology as well. And uh, what was it that, um, you know, drew you away from computers? Was that, I, mean, I guess, uh, you know, having started so early, was that something that other kids that you knew, you know, like on your block were, were also playing around uh, so, as I said, I started at the beginning because uh, that was the only thing I could do on my brand new shiny computer, just kind of copy and paste, uh, not copy and paste, read and write the same thing from a book. And uh, then, uh, I guess, a lot of time passed, so I can, I can speak about those things. Then uh, I, I kind of started cracking software and, and uh, you know, piracy <laughs> uh, at oh, that really? time. In the, in the early days. Yeah, so in in the eighties, so end of eighties, I was I, I was kind of like trying to figure out buying games, cracking them, trying to figure out how to put them on tapes without protection and stuff like that. Uh, it was it was really interesting. And then after that, I started uh, doing some gigs for different companies. And uh, by the time I came, university came, I was already I don't know like over 10 years in, in doing something with computers, and I was kind of a bit sick of it. It's interesting. And archaeology... Was... So, sorry, go ahead. Archaeology sounds like as far as you can get from computers. Kind of. And it's kind of cool, sexy, Indiana Jones, kind of. Who doesn't like Indiana Jones, right? Uh, so it was um, uh, 
sort of ancient Middle Eastern archaeology that you were drawn to, or? No, I was mostly prehistoric, kind of uh, Paleolithic, Neolithic, uh, like, I don't know, 4,000 years ago, give or take, something like that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's curious. That's the kind of archaeology my, my dad uh, was into. In oh, really? His, in his archaeology days, except the, the sort of Great Plains of North America in that time span. So a lot of trying to figure out what the buffalo were up to in connection with the humans and things like that. Okay, so yeah, exactly. Something like that. It's kind of, in my case, it was mostly in caves. Okay. Uh, yeah, spending my summer there. Um, and I have a question about, uh, it's interesting, you know, in the, in the 80s, if you were trying to crack game codes or, and things like that, um, it, a lot of our perhaps younger listeners might not know that in those days you couldn't really just go online and grab tools from all over the place. You had to be resourceful in a different way. Um, oh, yeah. How did, how did, was, there, was there a community that you were a part of or was it, you know, all very independent? Not- not really, because that's bef- not only that that's before internet, that's before BSDs. So before modem connecting to somebody, stuff like that, it was, uh, it was a nightmare. I think that uh, I don't remember exactly what I was doing at that, that time, but I remember that it was a lot of assembler kind of. So uh, before C came into, into being kind of like, look at the binary and try to find something that looks uh, like the thing you might want to change. Uh, so it's, uh, I mean, people would laugh and I mean, when, when I, if I would suggest to do something like that, go through binary code through assembler and then try to figure out what's going on. I think that they would put me in a, in a loony bin. <laughs> um, so, uh, you tried out, ar- ar- tried out archeology span and you ended up back in, in computer science. Um, there's a question that I like to ask people uh, on this podcast, which is, um, if you were starting over now, if you were, you know, university age, or if you were giving advice to someone like you, uh, who's about starting university age, would you, would you do a computer science degree formally at a university in 2017? Uh, I'm not really sure whether I would do university degree in two, but let's, let's put it this way. It's definitely much, makes much more sense to do university degree today than it was back then. I think that back then it was kind of usually mathematicians that spent a week of training in some computer, in computer science and then they would teach you. Really, it was almost a joke uh, uh, back then. But now it's, it's much better. Now, how good it is, I, I'm not really sure still. Uh, I, I do believe that while you do need to learn, that, that I mean, learning is an ongoing process throughout the whole career, right? And uh, I still have somehow think that until you start working on real projects in real company for a real customer, you have no idea, no matter how much time you spend uh, in university. I might be radical in that opinion, I guess. But um, yeah, no, I've I've actually heard that um, uh, in a number of areas from the from the other side, actually, where you know, for example, there will be people who think the most practical thing they can study at university is business. Um, and and then they get out, and the businesses that hire them realize they don't understand anything um, about what their role. And then the business has to sort of you know untrain what they've been poorly trained in, and then you know train them, you know, from the ground up in what they really do need to know. 
and it, it brings up a very you know interesting question of what university is for, right? Should should universities be considered to be job training centers, um, or should they be something else? And even if they are to be job training centers, should that mean that they would be following the instructions of companies now for people who are going to be graduating, you know, in half a decade? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm I'm not sure. Kind of, I have a relatively negative opinion about universities. I mean, it, it, I guess it all depends on also what one is studying, because the, the, there are certain things that you study and that don't really drastically change from one week to another. So, kind of archaeology, of course. I think that everybody who wants to be archaeologist, you should go to university. No doubt about that, right? Uh, but software, I, I would not. To be honest, I wouldn't trust. Uh, inability of a of a professor to teach me software if he's full time professor, because things are changing so fast you cannot catch up without really working really in real environment, right? And and not only in any company but some company that is on a cutting edge, right? So uh, if that would make sense, I think that universities should have like uh, professors that work only one day a week and the rest of their career they spend solving real problems so they can actually transmit those solutions and then the advancements in technology to others i mean it's it's so difficult to be software engineer these days that i think that whatever you knew last year is not valid anymore it's, it's that's how fast it changes that's really interesting so things like you know the information science and what a turing machine is are things that maybe a full-time professor could teach but when it comes to how you're actually going what you're actually going to be doing and adapting to you know what you'll you know actually be coding that's something else exactly exactly so yeah of course there is a base that you need to know uh, algorithms uh, turing machine all those things uh, without a doubt and then the, the rest is is just ever changing yeah i'll have some questions about about that uh you know a little bit later on um before we go on to talk about your books uh and devops um i wanted to ask you one of the um pleasures of doing this podcast is I get to talk to people from all around the world, uh, you know, some on the west coast of North America where I am, uh, but some uh, in Europe where, where you are, and even in Spain, I've interviewed uh, people there before. And I wanted to ask you, one of the questions I get to ask people is, what's the startup scene <clears throat> like uh, where you are? Uh, it's, it's improving greatly. I think that at least in Barcelona only, maybe like last five years, we are starting to get something that resembles uh, 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 a good starting scene, startup scene. Uh, but I think there's a big problem between Europe, most of Europe, not all, but most European and US is that uh, um, the money coming, uh, moving around uh, startups is, is quite different. The, the way how people invest, I think I have the impression that in US investors are more used to the fact that uh, there is a huge risk that you need to invest in 10 startups for one of them to actually be any successful. And in Europe, I think that we still have that uh, culture of I want to invest in something that is most likely going to work. Uh, and you cannot really know with startups. I mean, uh, most of them fail and then some of them succeed. And if you're lucky... Uh, you're going to be investing in a, in a successful one, but you need to invest, invest in many, not in one, kind of. Um, yeah, and, and also... Sorry, go yeah, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, um, I should, I should say, um, we're actually based in Canada. Um, so I'm familiar with the, uh, situation of watching all the kind of investment news coming from the United States and being in a place where people are more cautious and don't have pockets quite as deep. And the, I mean, it's, it's a very broad generalization, but generally speaking, if you had a kind of archetypal Canadian investor, it would be someone who invests in commodities. Um, yeah. And those are people who are, you know, um, they might, they might be ambitious, but they're not risk takers. Uh, you know, uh, let's just put it that way. So yeah, it's, a, I'm familiar with watching it be different somewhere else and a little bit slower and more constrained where you are. Exactly. I think that Europe is, is very similar to, to what you described just now, yes. And what's it like in Serbia? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't go there much. I kind of completely switched to, from both family perspective, living perspective, I switched completely to Barcelona. I, I think I consider myself being Catalan more than Serbian now. And did you, did, you, um, did you move right after university or did you spend a few years... No, actually, it's more complicated. I, I, I moved there before I finished university while I was still studying archaeology. Uh, I went uh, to Barcelona to give some lectures on their university about computers and archaeology and stuff like that. And I just loved that town so much that I went back home because my suitcase was too small, packed a big one, a bigger one, and moved without any plan, without any anything kind of like. I just... I just thought I need, I need to live in this city and then I'm still there. And in the mid nineties, could you, um, just move or, and work or did you have to get special work visas and become a citizen? Yeah. I, like that? Yeah. I had to get the visa and things like that. But, uh, one thing that, uh, living in Serbia makes you, uh, compared to most other countries is very resourceful to look out of the box. <laughs> so kind of like because of everything that happened uh, everybody including me was used to kind of like ah, no, okay the the normal way doesn't work then let's go this way or that way and then you figure out stuff um so you're living in an interesting part of the world um right now yeah yeah we don't know what, what will happen where i am right in a week from now but uh we'll see yeah, there's uh, for those who might not be aware, there's an independence movement uh, in Spain. Um, exactly. And uh, there's been a lot of news around that. Um, another another big, uh, you know, from an outside outsider's perspective, um, uh, issue in Spain has been um, unemployment in the last ten years or so. And I wanted to ask you. I know this isn't about your books or anything like that, but sure. Um, uh, but uh, has that sort of from at least in North American news, Spain was, you know, big marches in the streets and similar to news about Greece, all of a sudden you don't hear about it anymore. Um, uh, in the, in the just sort of headlines in the North American news. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Have things been improving? Yeah. So, I mean, like, what was it? When there was a big crisis everywhere, starting from the U S what was it like 15 years ago, something like that. Anyway, uh, Spain, Spanish economy collapsed, uh, and that's mostly because it was based on tourism and uh, real estate, uh, the big portion of, of, of economy. And those are the two things that are gone first, kind of like uh, first disappear when, when there is a global crisis, right? So when Spain really went, uh, went 
uh, went down drastically. Not as far as, as, as uh, Greece and Portugal, but probably uh, uh, close to that. And I, I think it's still kind of like, I'm, I'm not really following much, but I think it's still around over 20% unemployment. Uh, it's definitely better than, than during the crisis, but uh, it's still it's still not not great. At least not not on the levels it was before the crisis. And I think that that's part of the reason why for for all this uh, for independence desire, uh, you know, the the worse the situation is, the the more nationalism rises and more people kind of start questioning things and wanting to change things one way or another. My theory, when, when people kind of live great, then they don't care about things. They, they start caring about things mostly when, when things are not so great anymore. And in particular, um, youth unemployment is high, I understand. Uh, and so you know, yeah. you've got a lot of young people thinking with their whole lives ahead of them uh, and a lot of energy and maybe a desire for change that you know older people who are more settled into their lives might not have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible. At least in Spain, it's close to impossible for a young for for a young person to buy apartment. I mean, it's it's very hard even to rent. Many young people live with their parents, and and uh, uh, quite a few Spaniards went to I don't know UK, maybe Ireland or something like that. Especially in IT. Uh, so yeah, it's it's not. I mean, it's it's not a bad situation. Uh, it all depends on what you compare it with. Kind of, uh, I live in Serbia, so this the. Kind of, this is not not even near to what was going on there, but it's definitely not uh, uh, not a strong economy in Europe right now. Um, and so you moved to Spain um, and you graduated. Uh, no, 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 no. I oh, just oh. moved to Spain and dropped everything. Oh, really? I just, oh, okay. I literally kind of like I'm moving to Spain. The I, I think I took a couple of exams to finish to to uh, to finish fully university. I just dropped it all altogether. Just moved to Spain. And then what Start did off. you what did you do? Uh, I started uh, programming almost immediately. I mean, continued programming. Uh, uh, got employment in one company, then another, and stuff like that. Uh, kind of, I, I maybe at that time I was doubting whether to finish university or not and stuff like that. But then I realized that. I think that after you have years of experience, then university is becoming irrelevant. Nobody, nobody asks you about your degree. Uh, I think uh, when you have experience behind, degree is important. When you say I know nothing, but then one person knows nothing with the, with the degree, and the other one knows nothing with without degree, and then of course you're gonna pick the one with degree, right? But uh, I already at that time, uh, since I started coding very very young, I, I had years of experience working with companies, projects, stuff like that. So I just thought to drop it all together and then uh, do my job. Um, and one of the themes uh, that you write about in your books is failure. Uh, yeah. Uh, and this is, this is woven into a, it's a sort of, there's a, there are a number of other themes that I noticed in your writing, including, um, you know, adapting to change, which is related to failure. Can you uh, maybe tell the story of what was your first big, experience with a with a failure whether whether it was your responsibility or not um so i mean i, I think that most of the projects i mean depends when i work cases where i work for smaller projects like a freelancer that was usually fine you know me only or a couple of guys so that that's that's usually not a problem but i think that almost almost every bigger project where i worked with uh for uh, and then bigger company 
I, I don't think that there was hardly a case where the project was not a failure. It's just that with all the old ways of doing things and waterfall and stuff like that, uh, we invented so many ways how to uh, how to mask failure as a success. And you know, it, it's delayed for half a year, but that's a success, you know, because of this and that and stuff like that. Uh, I think most waterfall projects were a failure. Almost every project I think that that lasted for more than months, that that's a failure by definition. Because uh, you assume that you know what's what's going to happen in the future, and that that's just a wrong assumption. You you assume that you know everything in advance, and then you plan the project, and then it's a success or a success or a failure. But since you're planning based on unknowns, you're guessing, you're you're inventing things. So either you put a huge margin on what you're doing, saying okay, realistically this should probably take three months, but we're going to say that we're going to take it's going to take eight months, and then it's going to be a success. But then nobody would accept a project like that, so you never plan it with so much, so such a big margin. It's always a failure. So your answer, is, your question is: every project, every bigger project I worked on was a failure. That's how it is. <laughs> uh, is that how it is, or is that how it was? It, it, it's how it was, I think, uh, because in the meantime, since then, agile was adopted. Uh, we learned how that short iterations are that we should plan a week in advance, maybe weeks in advance, that we should uh, deliver in small iterations, uh, uh, learn from the mistakes and things like that. So, so I don't think that... And I think that software industry is still full of failures, but those failures are kind of uh, based on very small steps. So I kind of, I make a step, another, I make another step, I stumble, and then I continue. So it's, it's not really a failure anymore on a grand big uh, scheme of things but it's it's just small hiccups when when steps are very small then then you never really hurt yourself when you fail right yes um uh it's actually yet yeah, one of the one of the interesting things about reading the the introductions particularly to your book is you do you do talk about how things have have changed over time in a in more detail than than we can in a conversation like this um but yeah. you know seeing that that personal perspective on going from you know projects based on a waterfall model to you know continuous ultimately to sort of continuous deployment methods um is just a really interesting story to see um actually on the on the subject of things that are very small um uh i found a quote from you on twitter i think relatively recently from a talk you gave at devops con uh where mm -hmm. you say we can think of the whole computer system like a human body that consists of cells of various types. Uh, and I like that metaphor. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you, what you mean by that. Yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of looking at humans body as inspiration, how to build systems. Right. And now traditionally we were taught to build big monolithic systems. And if you would compare that with, with life, that would be, imagine that you now, for example, you're a single cell organism, right? What happens when you get damaged? Kind of, you cease to exist, you're dead, you're, you're no more, right? Kind of, you have a single point of failure. And the reason why we are so successful as, as organism is because there is no, I mean, it's not that there is no single point of failure. I mean, uh, Megana can do that. But in most cases, we are, we, we are composed of so many small element cells that uh, the extraction of one of them or or even a huge number of them is still not uh, affecting significantly how we work. And on top of that, 
you know, if things are small, doesn't matter whether it's sales or, or services, uh, they can be easily built, recreated, multiplied, and all those things that are happening in, in, in ourselves. So it's, I, I think that uh, kind of the way how life is organized is, is uh, I think that that's the direction where we are going with microservices, immutable deployments, uh, containers. Uh, I find a lot, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether I'm inventing an analogy or finding an analogy there, but to me, the, uh, uh, the systems we are building are, are more and more resembling how how life operates. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of questions about that, and probably a couple of things to clarify um, for the audience about microservices and DevOps and things like that. Um, but before we do that, um, a couple of things you said reminded me about a distinction you make. I think it's in in the preface to the DevOps 2.0 toolkit book about the difference between being a programmer and being a software craftsman. Um, what is that? What is yeah. that distinction? So it's, uh, we pro many of us are kind of working in companies where we are software programmers, where we are taught how to do one, one certain thing and probably do it very well. Uh, and, and then that, that knowledge, that's, those skills are exploited to infinite. Um, and uh, when I say exploited, I don't mean in a, in a, in a probably way how people would interpret it, but more in a way uh, you become so good at something that, that uh, you're utilized to do exactly that thing and nothing else over and over and over again. Uh, and, and then the, the problem with that be becoming really expert in one thing and, and, and doing that thing over and over again is that... Uh, very, you can very quickly lose mark, lose your value in the market, right? Uh, you're an expert, uh, I don't know, Java seven developer uh, or whatever, and then the market technology changes so fast that that if you, if you stop learning, if you just uh, continue exploiting that expertise, then you have no value outside of of your company, and and that means that you will gonna become one of those traditionalists that are trying to convince everybody to stick with whatever you know and stuff like that. And I, I like software craftsman movement because uh, it, it uh, has the name. It resembles kind of craft, craftsmanship when we are continuously learning uh, from elders or, or, I mean, from other people, not necessarily better than us, but uh, continuously trying to learn and improve and at the same time, I think that we are becoming less and less specialized. So, of course, everybody will have different specialty and all those things. But uh, I think that we as industry are getting hungry for people who can understand the system as a whole. So even though if you're a programmer, but you still need to know just enough about databases. You know, you need to know how, to, how your software is deployed. You need to know how it's testing. You need to know all those things. Because if you don't, then whatever is your specialty, whatever you're doing, is going to be done badly because it's not going to take in account all those other aspects of, of software development life cycle. Or... This is, I think, a good moment for me to ask you to give a maybe a couple minutes explanation uh, of what DevOps is um, to people listening who might not know or who might think they do and don't. Sure, sure. So uh, I need to start with the explanation of what is Agile. I need to assume probably that they might not know that either. So uh, if, if Agile was about breaking, uh, breaking the silos and creating uh, teams that are capable of developing software without, uh, uh, with, uh, with full autonomy 
and with very small iterations and so on and so forth. Basically, it's removing lean time. It's removing administrative hurdles from going to one department from one department to another and stuff like that. So with Agile, we got apart from short iterations and few other things, we got small teams that are capable to develop software uh, autonomously. Right. And now what what happened is that when Agile was invented, uh, it was a different world, and then uh, the skill set that is required to be autonomous changed drastically. Uh, so we, if we traditionally with Agile, that would be a tester, testers, developers, uh, business owners, more or less, that's everything you need. And then once you finish developing, you send it to sysadmins, operators, uh, other teams who is going to are going to maintain it. Basically, you do only the half half of the cycle. And I think the DevOps is about uh, putting all those people who who were coming after those teams into those same teams and extending the scope of what those teams can do. And the scope is, I'm a single team, uh, not I, sorry, we are a single team, we are six to, six to eight people, and we can do everything from beginning to the end, including deployment to production, monitoring, responding to page duty and all those things. So I think it's extending, it's, it's, evol- it's evolution of Agile, I think. Uh, but the difference is that I think that every once in a while, at least in software industry, we, whenever something good comes along, in time that, get, that something gets polluted and then perverted, and then we need to change the name instead of saying, this is an evolution of this thing. Uh, then we change the name and say, this is now DevOps, right? I truly think it's just evolution of what I just started. And so the, this sort of from a very high level, it, it sort of used to be that um, you'd have some programmers developing software, and then they would hand it off to, to other people whose job was to, you know, put it on the servers and actually give it to people um, exactly. to use. And so, and then, you know, what happened over time was the, the idea developed that these two activities shouldn't necessarily be treated as discrete, um, but rather as, as sort of strongly related to each other and integrated with each other. And in particular, as I understand it, one of the pressures in that direction was that deployment started happening more quickly and in smaller iteration and in smaller steps, as you were talking about before. And so if something can, if you can, if you can sort of have change something in your code and then have it live in a few minutes, um, that connection between how it's written and how it's deployed and then how it's going to be served up to people, I guess, needs to be much more tightly connected. Exactly. It's up, I mean, if, if you go back in time when uh, how we were developing software before, a typical project would be like half a year, a year, and then we have different uh, different uh, uh, things that needs to be done, like developing, testing, uh, deployment, and things like that. And each of those activities would last for weeks or months. And in between those activities, we would hand over what we call throwing over the wall and say, okay, now it's your turn to spend two months on this. And uh, if I'm waiting for your feedback for a while, that's not really matter on a big scheme of things because the whole project is, is, is a full year. So if I'm going to wait for something for, for a month, it's not really the end of the year, the, the world. But now the, the speed of deployment is such that uh, I'm expected to deliver a new feature within a day. We, we just agree, oh, we want to do this, excellent. It's going to be in production today or tomorrow, maybe, or, or a week from now. So there is no time to lose, even uh, even to lose a single day in waiting for somebody else to do something else because whatever you're requesting that person 
to do. Uh, he has some other cue items and all those things. No? So it's instead of having small horizontal teams that are each team is uh, each team is uh, very specialized into certain activity. Like this team is a test. This might be a good moment um, for me to ask you to also talk a little bit about what microservices are. Sure, sure. Uh, so microservices that uh, so imagine that you have a system uh, that does many things, right? Uh, let's say Amazon website, right? Uh, uh, and then microservices would be instead of having one big monolithic system like that, you would split it into smaller pieces and have a completely separate service that serves as a shopping cart. One would be product catalog, and the third one would be uh, login and registration, right? And then once that is split into small pieces, then you can have uh, smaller teams working on each of them. So instead of having two pe- 200 people working on a single product, you have ten team, uh, 20 teams, 10 people each working each on their own uh, software or a service. And um, does that create, I, I imagine that makes some things much more efficient and easier to do, but it also means that all these things need to be connected to each other and work work together. Yeah, so there are, um, uh, so it makes it easier in says that of autonomy. You don't need to wait for somebody else to do something, right? Uh, you can just move at your own speed and they deliver updates to shopping carts as fast as, as, as you can without uh, thinking about what's happening with the rest of the system, no? Uh, and then communication between those services, that, that, that is a challenge that we are solving uh, now with uh, containers, schedulers, and uh, uh, service discovery and things like that, which I'm not sure whether I'm... Uh, uh, I'm never certain what... Uh, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that now I'm talking about things that uh, don't mean much. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I know what you mean. Um, uh, so one one thing, uh, one very concrete thing that you write about is um, test driven development. Um, and how does how does this uh, world where you've got things sort of split up into these multiple teams or multiple services? How does testing change when you're operating an environment like that? Okay, so uh, traditionally what would happen is uh, that uh, we develop something and then once that something is developed, uh, we would uh, run some tests to validate whether that something is correct. And in most cases in the past, those tests would be very very long-term and manually executed. uh, And whenever you introduce a new change, then you would need to run again all those manual tests again. And then we moved into having automated tests. Uh, so because that speeds up the whole process, because if something is repetitive, uh, if you test the same feature over and over again, then the automation really brings you a lot of value. But the problem is that if you write uh, automation after you wrote the code, two things will happen. First, uh, the automation is going to mimic the code because you're already subjective. You already uh, saw what the code does, and then most likely you're going to create a test code automation that will mimic that instead of uh, having a clear clear mind, kind of ignoring what you, what you know that is already done. Uh, and another problem with that is that uh, 
automation or testing done after after the product uh, is usually too late because it would be the same thing as if we would uh, create an assembly line for cars and we would produce the cars and test whether they work or don't. And if they don't, then we're going to start over, right? Uh, with test-driven development, the process is uh, somehow reversed, uh, meaning that we write first tests that serve two purposes. One is obvious to validate uh, something that we are about to do. And the another uh, purpose is to uh, is define what should be done. So requirements of what, uh, by writing tests first, you're defining what will be done next. Uh, it serves as a kind of requirement of what you're going to develop. And on top of all of that, now coming to test-driven development, test-driven development, uh, apart from being proposing the tests are written in before the code itself, tests are written before the functionality is developed, uh, tries to do that with very short iteration. So uh, between writing, uh, I would spend maybe a minute writing a test and then uh, validate a minute writing code that makes those tests pass or and eventually creates a functionality. And then I would repeat the process over and over and over again. So the while while 15 years ago uh, development was uh, lasted for months and testing was lasted for months after development, and then we would go back and forth to correct the problems. Now the iterations are with testing development last in minutes uh, instead of months as before. And so everything just shorter. And is there if you've got say a, a company with a culture that doesn't already have a sort of test-driven development procedure mm -hmm. in place, is it difficult to convince people that you should do things that way? Very. Because, uh, and especially in case of test-driven development, uh, because it's about changing the culture of a company. And culture of a company is much much harder to 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 change to update to modify than technology technology comes easy and in case of engineering development it's all about having different uh, approach different uh, processes than than changing a certain technology uh, and then people especially old timers if somebody's used to do something in certain way for 10 years then telling that somebody that uh, that's not the right way to do things is very very hard to accomplish, and on top of that, uh, if if somebody with the top test driven development, that would mean that uh, that somebody will start questioning the value of let's say a testing department, because if I'm going to going to write my own tests and then I'm going to write code behind those tests or features, then why do we need a testing department? Which is also not true. We do need them but probably not in that quantity as, as we needed them before. So it's both about changing the culture and uh, disrupting uh, certain established departments and maybe people's security in their work and a few other things. Um, one thing you write about as well is self-healing systems. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because I believe it's, it's connected to the idea of automating things and doing things as quickly as you can and then also having, you know, microservices, all these separate things working together at once and testing. Yeah, so self-healing is – so actually there are two concepts. 
self-healing and self-adaptation. And I think that they go back to my analogy with, let's say, human body. Is uh, So in, in our own bodies, uh, we are continuously being attacked by viruses and, and uh, things happen to us. Most of those things we don't notice because our, our organisms self-heal, right? Uh, you get hurt, uh, new, those cells will die and new cells will be recreated. And all those, all, all those things are happening without us going to a doctor. Um, and then there is self-adaptation, meaning that if I'm running, then uh, uh, my, the, the number of things happening in my body and things created and uh, the state of my body needs to change to accommodate that uh, external influence, those external influences or changing conditions. And I think that the same thing we are trying to apply to, to, to software systems to, uh, so that uh, instead of some uh, creating when this thing happens, uh, do that. Uh, we, can, we are trying to automate or leave, uh, uh, leave humans, uh, to say the least, uh, trying to do creative things. Like I said, each one of us should go in the morning to an office, if you work in an office, and do something you didn't do yesterday. And all those repetitive things like uh, what happens when a server goes down? When a server goes down, then you follow this process, right? Uh, what happens when a service uh, is unavailable? Then you follow that process. When all those repetitive things can be easily given to machines to, to deal with it themselves. And, and I think that that's self-healing, trying to uh, recuperate uh, from failure in a fully automated way. And with self-adaptation would be to increase or decrease the number of uh, replicas of a service or uh, the number of servers running depending on the traffic, right? In the morning, for example, we might have relatively few users to our website and we need relatively few servers to serve those users. And then in the afternoon, the number of users might jump, jump up and we need more servers. And all those things should be fully automated. And um, so that we leave people, first of all, because automation is more reliable because it's repetitive in exactly the same way. It's much faster and does generally better job than, than us. And that at the same time frees us to do more interesting things because who, who really wants to go to work every day and do exactly the same what you did yesterday and do it in a, in a way that it, with the result that is much worse than if we let machines do that. So I think that, the next step in evolution of what we do as programmers would probably go beyond that and then towards uh, some kind of machine learning and uh, creating in more intelligent systems capable uh, of doing things without us. That's interesting. Um, you're touching on, I, I imagine, deliberately on you know the very controversial topic of automation. Generally, I'm sure they're probably not listening to this podcast so much, but I'm sure there are a lot of, I know there are a lot of people out there who would love to go to work every day and do the same thing again and could care less if a machine would be better or worse than them at it. Uh, what, what's your what's your take? Just you know, to sort of go sideways a little bit on 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 this theory that or this this you know idea that the machines are going to take all the work away from the people. I, I don't think that that will ever happen uh, from people in general, because uh, at least not in any foreseeable future. Uh, we are still more intelligent than machines. We have uh, capacity to be creative, uh, to come up with new stuff. Machines are mostly 
very good at doing repetitive things. Today, I don't know really what will happen 100 years from now, 50 years, but in any foreseeable future, machines are not going to replace people. What will happen is that machines are replacing people who who have difficulty to, to change what they do. Like, for example, uh, what will happen with taxi drivers when uh, uh, autonomous cars uh, become a norm, right? It will be a huge problem unless uh, they can change the way how they operate their business. Uh, but if, if so, if they just do exactly the same what they're doing today, then they might have then they might be in real danger of uh, being uh, fully replaced. So I, I don't think that we are going going to be replaced by machines uh, but uh, what we do will and is constantly changing so as long as each one of us individually can adapt to those changing uh, changes then we should be fine you have a great line and uh and sort of bracing line in your latest book um where you write there is no alternative to a constant struggle to be competitive um and it's interesting in this context when people kind of load up into their minds concerns about automation taking away jobs from people, they often treat the current status quo as something that was always the case. Um, whereas, of course, we all know there was a time when, you know, there was uh, guys driving horses and buggies around and then that got replaced by the, you know, people driving the cars around. Um, and, uh, you know, everything has always been a constant struggle, but people often want to treat some position they've attained as the stable and natural state of affairs. Um, and I do, I do find it really interesting that there is, you know, amongst the the themes in your writing, this idea of constant change and constant adaptation is, um, something that we, we always need to keep in mind in, in our, in our careers, uh, and in the systems that we build. Exactly. Uh, One difference, I think, important, uh, what you said, I fully agree. Uh, Those changes were happening always throughout history, right? Uh, Like, look at the Industrial Revolution. Everybody thought that they were going to lose jobs, and nobody did. But what is different is that those changes in the past were happening from one generation to another. And now that frequency increased so much. It's happening within a single generation. You have multiple drastic changes happening to to us in the way how we work. So we cannot just rely on an idea, I can reach pension as I am, but my children will need to adapt. Now you need to adapt. I think that's that's the difference maybe with the past. Um, Another difference with the past too, you write uh, in, in, in that book as well, the Kubernetes book, every company is a software company. And I wonder if um, in your work with clients over the years, has that been something that people in the executive suite have embraced or even understood? No, I I don't think they did yet. At least depends how you define understood. Because people very often throw away catchphrases. So I hear often people saying, yeah, we are now a software company. But I don't feel that they truly understand what that means. Because if if they do, then they would become aware that they need to make drastic changes. Because if you are, let's say, a bank, 
your business is drastically different than, than it was uh, 10 years ago. You don't need offices anymore. You don't need uh, vaults and all those things. Uh, and if your business drastically changed, that means that uh, whole, the whole way how you organize your company and then where you put focus needs to change as well. And I think that there are many companies are still saying those things without realizing how much uh, change they need to introduce to comply with those phrases. And it's very, very hard. And a company, uh, I, I don't know exact uh, statistics, I don't remember it anymore, but something like uh, last, uh, om, only a few Fortune 500 companies that existed like 15 years ago, something like that still exist today. I don't think that people are aware that how how fast things are changing and how much if you don't adapt and adaptation today mean, means being software, fully software company. Uh, otherwise, the alternative is just to disappear. Yeah, some of the, the sort of stories I hear is um, people saying, you know, that um, when it gets to a, a high enough level where decisions are made about where money is going to go, people often can have the attitude that, oh, the computers are just this cost center um, and just this 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 annoyance that I, I sort of you know have to throw money at every once in a while and they'll you know you know when when security for example comes up they'll just say oh well what are the chances that you know that data might be stolen and they go oh yeah well that's that's you know that's not worth spending any money on or that's only worth spending this much money on um, do you think those are attitudes that are going to ha- I mean given what you just said about you know churn in the fortune 500 is this something that's just going to naturally change with you know corporate evolution no, no, that will definitely change it's just that in most cases that will change by corporations disappearing and in other changes will in other cases that will happen by corporations uh changing drastically right uh, otherwise like uh who would have said for example uh even five years ago, that uh, a television is a software business, not nothing else, right? And look at Netflix today. Uh, and then look what, what happened to most television um, channels that are in real trouble, at least in Europe. I like to say, when, when people ask me questions like, oh, but I really like what you're talking about, and I would really like to do that, but my companies, you know, they're so traditional... Uh, they would never allow me, and I usually give them advice, like change the company or change the company. Change, try to change how your company operates. Go somewhere else because that company will not exist for long. I see. Change your company or change companies. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, you uh, deliberately chose um, self-publishing as a path for your DevOps toolkit series, uh, which I don't know if it, it began as the idea for a series, but it definitely turned into that. And I was wondering if you could yeah. talk a little bit about that decision. Why was self-publishing uh, so important for these books? So uh, uh, the way how I work is very chaotic. Um, I'm going to start writing a book uh, like I have a plan, then I'm going to do index, and then I'm going to uh, think about, create a summary of each chapter, and so on and so forth. And once I spent the month thinking about it and planning, I'm going to start writing. My approach is very chaotic. I, I, I just start writing about things that I'm interested in at that moment. 
And then at one moment that starts getting shape and form and becomes a full-blown book. Uh, and that really does not work well with how traditional uh, publishing companies work. But I think, and, and at least that's how, those were my reasons behind the first book. But then I realized that actually it's it's much more. And that I think that the true reason for me self-publishing is uh, the ability to uh, publish something that is just started. Like I publish maybe when I reach 15% of a book. I think that the latest is around 20 right now. Uh, and And it's something like, Okay, guys, uh, whoever wants this book, take it. Uh, I just started it. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what's going to be, be the end result of the book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see. Um, uh, in, I think it's in your third book, uh, the DevOps 2.2 Toolkit, um, Self-Sufficient Docker Clusters. You, you're explicit at the beginning about how you began without a plan, and you just wanted to see yeah. how, it would, how it would turn out. And not, not just the journey isn't... isn't um, <clears throat> you're not alone. Uh, you've got your readers going along with you. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because you get a lot of feedback from people while you write. Yeah, so uh, after my first book, I mean, first book with Limpub, uh, I opened a Slack channel where uh, every reader can join. And uh, and we have those constant communications, I think, in real time. Uh, some of them are shy and semi-private messages. Some of them are public. Uh, so they just get notification. New chapter is out. They read it. Uh, day later, they they start sending me feedback like, "This is horrible. This doesn't work. Uh, I don't like this. Oh, this is great, but uh, how about putting this in the next chapter?" Right? Uh, and, and I kind of like it because uh, I'm, I'm giving people what they want, not what I think they want. That's really interesting. And you, you write, too, about having books in a maintenance mode. Yeah, I think that, that that's, that's my another complaint, especially behind uh, printed copies, is, of course, if, if it's a novel, let's say Harry Potter, I think that that's great, and, and uh, there is no, not much reason to change there. But uh, for something like technology, things are changing so fast that... Uh, uh, buying a book that somebody brought two years ago and haven't updated anymore should be kind of illegal almost. Uh, because things change so so fast. And then, so uh, at least in case of my books, I think uh, those who buy them, uh, they can maybe think of them more as a better structured blog where I'm going to continue adding stuff and then updating stuff as technology changes or my experience changes. So, of, of course, maybe years later, that, that does not happen anymore. But at least for the first couple of years, it's, uh, even when it's 100% done, it's still not done. It's uh, getting continuously updated. And um, you, do, you do have um, print copies of versions of your book available on Amazon. I was wondering, just for those listening who are or are considering self-publishing, how did you manage that process? So once once I get from Limpub the the files for printed uh, for prints and ebooks and stuff like that, it's just uh, registering on. Uh, in case of Amazon, that would be KDP and Create Space. KDP is for ebooks on Amazon, and Create Space for printed copies. Just about registering there, filling a couple of fields, and uploading the file given by Limpub, and uh, 
it's probably like 15 minutes process altogether. Well, that's uh, that's yeah. great to hear. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that that print print ready PDF is a what I like to call a battle hardened feature. Um, oh yeah. And I can thank you know we can we can all thank uh, the hard work that many lean pump authors put into giving us you know feedback and in, into those process that process as well is one of the reasons you can normally get away with just just uploading it and and uh, you know being ready to go. Um, but sorry. One thing that I noticed. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah. Uh, so if if you look at the sales, kind of uh, how much comes from Limpub and, and uh, Amazon, for example, uh, I've really noticed a huge change is that at the beginning, years ago, when I published the first one, uh, after it was 100% published, most of my sales were coming from Amazon. And I, I think that the, the user base behind Limpub and Advantages are growing so much that uh, now Amazon is much smaller uh, user base in case of my books than Limpub itself. I've kind of like I'm even doubting whether whether it makes sense to go to uh, Amazon for my fifth book whenever that comes. That's uh, really I mean, interesting it, feedback. It's it's kind of uh, okay. So maybe not not a good doubting uh, since it's such a, such a simple process. It takes me 15 minutes. I will always put it on Amazon, uh, but. Uh, uh, compared to three years ago, four years ago, uh, the percentage from Limpub is increasing compared to that, that might be for a niche kind of uh, readers interested in technology, I'm not sure, or in general, uh, but definitely increasing the, the, the odds. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, one, I mean, there's, you know, a couple of things I can speculate about that go towards explaining that one is just, you know, Limpub, Limpub is older and people are more familiar with buying in progress books and that, that concept and the idea that, you know, in particular, maybe technology books are something that you should uh, be, you know, buying in a format that can be updated. Um, but also in particular uh, with your books, um, the importance of community, um, I think is, is something that people have, you know, grown more familiar with over time um, and, you know, building that community, uh, through LeanPub is probably easier uh, than through um, Amazon, in particular because we make it so easy to do in-progress publishing and send updates to people, like send 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 emails to people if you have a major update and and things like that. Um, uh, my my last selfish question is: um, if there was one thing we could build for you, or one thing we could fix for you, what would that be? Ooh, I'm I'm not sure. I cannot recall something that I was kind of I really disliked, and uh, and don't have. Maybe I'm go, I go I'm not sure whether I got so used to it that I like now everything and I, and I had problems in the past and I forgot about them, but nothing really comes to my mind. Okay, well, um, if, uh, <laughs> if if something does come up, uh, please uh, come to mind afterwards. Please, you know, shoot me an email and uh, and let me know because you know feedback from well, battle hardened authors is is really important to us and really helps everybody else who lives, uses LeanPub in the sure. future. Um, well, thanks very much for your time in the in the evening there, uh, Victor, for um, uh, taking the time to do this interview uh, and uh, for being a LeanPub author. Thank you. Thank you for having Lip Up. Thanks. <laughs>